Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Welcome everybody to another Live Talk show. And after a bit of a hiatus, uh, with me is uh, Dr. Lewis Blevins. How are you? I'm doing very well, Jorge. How about yourself? Good, good. It's nice to be back on the air. I know we have a lot of uh, good things to talk about today, so I figured we'd get started. Yeah. What do you think? The, yeah, let's do it. The break was nice, though, right? So uh... it, it was, and then we have some really exciting uh, things uh, on the horizon scheduled for live talk, uh, so we'll be announcing those soon. Um, so uh, anyway, looking, for, looking forward to, to those. So... I thought today we would, um, I know you've been really busy with your clinic, so I thought we would uh, ask you about that and uh, hopefully for you to discuss some of your more interesting cases. Sure. Well, it's been busier than ever. Uh, you know, the, the busiest time of the year for any physician is usually the end of the year because people want to get in and get their scans in their labs while they've met their deductibles throughout the year. Of healthcare, yeah. but for some reason, this is the busiest January I've ever had. Uh, we're seeing about 50 plus patients a week, which for a pituitary endocrinologist is an astounding number of patients. Yeah. Uh, all of these patients, as you know, are very complex, and uh, we're not only monitoring tumor and tumor effects and treatments for the tumor, but we're also monitoring each of the different hormone axes and looking at side effects of therapy and adjusting treatments. So every patient is complex, and when you when you add uh, 50 patients to your schedule every uh, week, it's a lot of work. And besides that, I have been entertaining probably 100 uh, things a day through the electronic chart, whether it be a lab report coming back or ordering labs or ordering an MRI. Uh, and usually every day is about 30 or so messages from patients. Uh, so it's a lot of work to do. Um, yeah. It's a, it's almost overwhelming at times, uh, the things that we do. But I love the work. It's fun. It's fascinating. And I'm glad to be helping people. Yeah. I can imagine the uh, what you mentioned, uh, the uh, not only the pituitary function, but the other hormones that get affected when you when you have a pituitary issue. And it's all, it's all about balancing. And that has to add a tremendous amount of thinking of what to do. I would think it's, yeah, not, it's it, not a it, just a black and white kind of a, a, a solution, no? It does. The good news is when you've done it as long as I have, uh, yeah. now 30, what, three years since I started wow. seeing pituitary patients, you sort of are quickly able to sort of assess and know what to do based on what patients are telling you and how the labs are correlating. So, you know, I'm not saying I get it right all the time, but probably most of the time uh, I uh, draw on that experience and everything I've learned over the years to be able to make decisions. So they come quickly, but it's still a lot of information flow. Every patient may have six problems that you're addressing. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. The and hardest part, the hardest part of it to manage, though, is the patient messages because patients, the patients write us all the time. Sometimes they're seeking medical care through a chart message, and that's really not appropriate. We should really be having a visit rather yeah. than trying to do a message. And, you know, today we had someone who wanted a wheelchair. I mean, that's not the in the purveyance of a pituitary endocrinologist to write a prescription for a wheelchair authorization. Yeah. Uh, so, but we, you know, ask them to contact their primary physician and take care of it there. Um, 
Is that one of the challenges with uh, telemedicine, or one of the things that has gotten, or is is it the same when you look back when you were not doing as much telemedicine? Is it? Well, before the pandemic, we were doing about twenty percent telemedicine, eighty percent live visits, and now yeah. I'm doing a hundred percent telemedicine. Every day, I have patients thank me for doing it because it saves them a six to eight hour round trip uh, uh, for a fifteen minute appointment or a thirty minute appointment, and um, you know they have they don't have to take time off from work or find childcare or uh, pay for travel expenses, for example. Yeah. Uh, so people yeah. are happy about that. But the the wonderful thing that telemedicine enables us to do is to see more patients. A lot of people wouldn't get their health care because they didn't want to make the trip, but now they can get their MRIs and their labs done locally and do a telemedicine visit with me. Some of them from the deck of their outside from their home, yeah. others at work, others in their school rooms if they're teachers, you know. So students in the library, we, we can do telemed telemedicine from so many different locations for patients. And it's so, um, I think it's, it, it's so valuable from the human productivity perspective. If you have someone who doesn't have to take a day off work to travel, they can work, they can be productive. Uh, if someone doesn't have to take a day off from school, they can just do a quick visit. Their parents can log in from another another site, for example, and uh, do that visit. It's just so less disruptive and it's productive and, and priceless in the long run because of all that uh, time saved and energy saved trying to travel to the office. And people get better care because they're getting care when they wouldn't get care before. Um, it also makes it easy to field the patient chart messages where when it's clear someone's writing and has a medical advice question that requires thought or further workup, we can manage that with appropriate testing and then have a visit uh, to discuss things that are really beyond the two or three sentences we probably should be writing on the, on the patient messages. Yeah. And where, where, where's the regular, the regulatory piece uh, now with, with, you know, was relaxed during COVID so you could do interstate, interstate uh, uh, right. medicine. Is that moving? Well, or? it's a, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, that's still a process in evolution. Our former president had a, an executive order that said that it was fine to do telemedicine across state lines. And that really revolutionized telemedicine and medicine in general, and that people could seek expert care across state lines without having to get on the airplane or drive in their car. Uh, and, and, and that was tremendous because it brings, um, you know, tertiary level health care to people who live Oh my God! Uh, yes, out in the middle of nowhere, as I did growing up. You know, we lived in in the south, and and uh, you know there was no big medical center close to where we grew up. And you know, it might have been nice to have the opportunity to do telemedicine then, just for to improve your health care and improve mm -hmm. that access to good health care. Uh, so it's it's great for that, but uh, the the current president's administration allowed that executive order to expire. Oh. I don't know why, because the pandemic wasn't over. It didn't make sense to allow it to expire, except he probably didn't want to do what the other guy had done because it was the other guy. That's the only thing I can think of. So the, the, the way the states look at it is that they feel that they have the right to regulate the, the practice of medicine in their states on their citizens. So you live in Nevada. <clears throat> so the state of Nevada feels like they should be able to regulate the practice of medicine there. Uh, just as California feels the same. Uh, and they don't want to relinquish that. 
So for example, you know, I could call you on the phone and talk about your labs and about your MRI. I could even call in prescriptions as a result of that visit. And that's totally fine because we had a phone call. But if we do telemedicine, I see you on video and do exactly the same thing. That's considered me practicing medicine in Nevada without a license. Now, fortunately, UCSF is on the cutting edge and they look at it a little bit differently. They have some very strict guidelines and rules. They've actually uh, asked us to stop doing certain things that are for out-of-state people. They do have some guidelines on patients that we can see by telemedicine who live out-of-state. The, the predominant ones are people who are definitely probably going to come here for treatment, such as surgery yeah, uh, or radiation therapy or what have you. Uh, people that we've operated on before or taken care of before who don't have access to the same level of care of a pituitary center in their region or their location, uh, so we can still see by by telemedicine and they're willing to sort of go to bat for us if, you know, say if Nevada says you can't see our patients or whatever. And that's because we're a tertiary center, you know, and, uh, and you know, our care is above what people have access to in small towns around America. So, uh, so if we've seen someone before, uh, we're able to still take care of them if they can't find a reasonable pituitary center close by. We're probably finding that we're, we're, we're discharging a lot of our out-of-state patients, helping them find doctors close to them. Because some people, most of the bulk of their care has been done and they just need long-term surveillance. And, 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 and the long-term surveillance cases and maybe the maintenance of you know, some small hormone replacements, patients could see a local endocrinologist even though most endocrinologists are focused on things that are not pituitary and pituitary is only about 10% of their business, if that much, yeah. uh, they can usually still do patients that have been uh, sort of treated and, and you, you've arrived at reasonable conclusions about therapy and, and, you know, periodic surveillance scans and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a moving target. It's, it's in flux. My own opinion is that in this modern age of technology, uh, and the flow of information, we ought to be able to practice medicine across state lines, especially with telemedicine. Um, Particularly with highly specialized medicine, you know. Uh, uh, I, you know, the, what I hear uh, when I talk to people is that everybody that can do me- telemedicine from the patient's standpoint loves it uh, because it's so, you know, convenient and easy, particularly if you don't have to be seen. Uh, and... Uh, so and but I think it'd be worth uh, for us to do some research from the you know maybe the patient standpoint to see what what's going on with the lobbying piece, and if there's something going on where people are working to make it more permanent, uh, or you know to go back to um, COVID times so telemedicine becomes easier, and as you say the access to people that would otherwise not have it is fantastic. You are listening to Live Talk. We'll be right back.
Okay, so after seeing 50 patients a week for a few weeks, you must have some interesting uh, cases to share. Yeah, there's never a shortage of interesting patients. Uh, I can imagine. Uh, to me, I, to me, I think every patient's interesting in one way or another. But some, we see some absolutely fascinating pathology at UCSF and patients with very large tumors and uh, uh, and sort of situations that require our expertise to try to get them out of their their current predicament. Um, several interesting this week, a couple and several in, in the hospital as well. Not only have I been managing the outpatient practice, but I've been uh, consulting with the neurosurgery residents on a couple of inpatients as well, including one patient that had probably the largest craniopharyngioma that I've ever seen. Uh, and uh, she had surgery and she's had some difficulties as expected. We knew they were coming, but she's doing very well. Mm -hmm. But managing her diabetes insipidus and cerebral salt wasting and and uh, other complications too. So those those things will keep you on your toes and keep you very busy. It, it reminds me that uh, if you have pituitary disease, you probably should get to a center that knows what they're doing because I think that patients like this require expertise and uh, and uh, considerable um, uh, attention that I, that I don't think you get in community hospitals. And experience uh, to not small, experience to not yeah. make a, a mistake, no, or sort of wonder about things exactly. have a, a certain amount of, uh, uh, I don't know, I, assurance that what you're doing is the right thing, obviously. Yeah. Oh, this patient's presented some very unusual fluid challenges and uh, diabetes insipidus with cerebral salt wasting is very difficult to manage and uh, her thirst perception is, is abnormal. And I, I was thinking about her this morning as I was working with the residents that I can think of only a, one other gentleman in this country that I think probably could manage this patient. That's Joseph Verbalis back east, but um, it gives you an example of how difficult these people are. I mean, the neurosurgeons involved don't know what to do, so I've been helping to get get the patient through those difficult times. So that that's fascinating. I, I saw a patient uh, the other day that had a um, a uh, an, a history of an aggressive pituitary tumor requiring two surgical procedures and. Um, <clears throat> is due for a scan, so we're going to get that soon. It was just routine follow-up. And one of the things that he told me during his visit was that I'm just having this terrible back pain that's uh, new, and and uh, and I don't, I've taken medicines, nothing's helping, I don't know what to do. And, and I, I was thinking, how many endocrinologists, or even pituitary endocrinologists, would tell this guy, go see your primary care doctor, this is, this is the back, and that's not anything to do with the pituitary gland. Um, but as a, an experienced pituitary endocrinologist, my take on it is his back pain's unusual. It's new. He has a history of aggressive invasive pituitary tumor. And sometimes these tumors are cancers and they metastasize to the spine and cause back pain. So, so we're going to get an MRI of his spine and take a look and maybe do some further study depending on what we find. Um, but it's sort of um, something I've been thinking about a lot lately because I'm writing a, a, a review article for the American Cancer Society on pituitary carcinoma. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to me, and hopefully to any, any pituitary endocrinologist, his symptoms and signs would make you wonder whether he actually has a carcinoma, um, which are rare. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. We had a show recently about the name change. Yes, uh, I was going to ask you about that, yeah pit net tumors, and we're going to do another show in the near future with Dr. Sylvia Asa, who spearheaded those efforts. That's correct. February 9th, she's, uh, she's signed up to do it, and we're very excited about having her 
uh, in our show. So February 9th, make a note. Uh, not the you, but the audience. <laughs> yeah, I should make a note too. The The controversy is that the, it might sort of make patients and other people, including insurance companies and et cetera, think that these tumors are potentially more obviously cancer than they, than they should be uh, regarded and may change life insurance policies, insurance policies and things like that. So, um, but, you know, and, and the, the name change is well taken, and I look forward to learning more about Dr. Asa. But the, the thing to keep in mind is that we tell most all of our patients, yeah, this is a benign tumor but the, after surgery, but the fact remains, we don't know who's going to form a pituitary cancer, who's going to have a pituitary tumor that has a cell left behind, or maybe it already happened where that cell became malignant and started to spread, and it may take, you know, three to five years, 20 years, whatever, for that show, that tumor to to manifest yeah. as a malignancy. And the pathology so, that you do after after the, the surgery doesn't typically give you any... No, any... it doesn't give us any any indication whatsoever there's a malignant. We can tell whether it seems to be a benign, sort of not a problem tumor, or we, or we can tell if it might be of an aggressive subtype that needs close follow-up. And this guy had a tumor that we were following closely because of the subtype, and his, his back pain is new. Um, I've seen probably about 20 to 30 pituitary cancers in my career. And, uh, and I was curious because I was looking at the statistics and I, I have a pretty good recollection of about how many new patients with pituitary adenomas I see every year. Uh, and and it's sort of, there's always been this ratio between the number of people that go to surgery and the number of people that I've seen for all pituitary diseases and pituitary tumors. And I estimated that I've seen about probably 10,000 pituitary patients, well, pituitary tumors, probably 30,000 pituitary patients, maybe more, wow. but uh, 10,000 different patients with pituitary tumors in my career. And if you figure 20 to 30 cases, that's 0.2 to 0.3% of all pituitary tumors. And it's just as it turns out, when you look into the literature and read the books, they say 0.1 to 0.2% of all pituitary tumors ultimately prove to be malignant. So it's a, it's a very, very small number. Most of these are benign, but I, I maintain that we're probably missing tumors in some of those other people. There are probably, for every person who's diagnosed with pituitary cancer, there may be two or three that are not and just live their lives and never suffer from it. Or maybe they have back pain and nobody does anything about it. Or if they die and have an autopsy, you'll find it in their liver or their lymph nodes or whatever. Um, but uh, the, the patient was sort of timely because I'm writing this review article and, uh, and it sort of helps me remember that patients with pituitary diseases, oftentimes we tell them, see your primary care doctor about this or that or whatever. Uh, but uh, sometimes we as the pituitary endocrinologist need to think this could be one of those rare malignancies that we'll see uh, that may need some attention. So uh that was that was interesting to me just to sort of have that come up again and uh, you know I'm always on the look for people who may have troubles due to their pituitary tumor and something as common in society as back pain would make me think that we need to screen for this now the odds are a lot of people have back pain and it, it's probably a musculoskeletal issue but is it but the way I practice medicine is my job to prove that it's not a cancer sure. that's spread you know so yeah that it's not the worst possible that would have yeah. the worst possible outcome. We may find something else, but you know, my job as a pituitary endocrinologist is to know that pituitary cancer does happen. I've seen it. Yeah. And to know how it presents. And if I see something that flags it, then I need to proceed with that workup.
Interesting. So that that was interesting. A couple interesting new patients with acromegaly uh, who are going to be headed to surgery and and uh, some fascinating uh, non-functioning tumors as well. Some pretty large ones. Uh, people are going to need uh, operations in the near future. So it's all good. And then, of course, I love my patients. So as you know, being one of my patients and uh, I enjoy seeing people when everything is great, yeah. you know, being able to say, hey, all your labs are perfect. Your tumor is not back forget about this and me for a year and go about your merry way and let's get a scan and more labs in a year, you know, we'll refill your medicines and it's done. We had a lot of patients like that uh, yesterday, probably three quarters of our patients were people who were doing extremely well, didn't require any, anything other than the routine surveillance. And uh, as you know, with pituitary disease, somebody has to have a, an educated eye on you to make sure that you're going to do well long-term. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those are the, those are the nice ones, right? The, they go home and we'll see you in a year. Yeah. Some, you know, sometimes um, external forces disrupt the care that we provide. And probably as you've experienced, the, uh, the, the biggest external forces are insurance companies and pre-authorization. I can't tell you how many people we see every week who we're seeing because the insurance company didn't want to authorize a, a renewal of a medicine they've, medicine they've been on for 10 years. I don't understand that. Right. Why, how can an insurance company say you need to get this authorized? Well, the doctor's had me on it for 10 years and I'm doing fine on treatment. I should be able to continue. But, you know, they create work for us just because they want to uh, not pay the bills and they don't want to cover the cost of these medicines. I had one today of a patient who has clear cut growth hormone deficiency, but they don't want to treat. They don't want to allow us to treat the patient because the IGF-1 is normal. All the data say that IGF-1 has only about a 75% accuracy and plenty of people with growth hormone deficiency have low normal IGF-1 levels as does this patient. Yeah. And we did the stimulation test, which the patient failed because that's the diagnostic criteria for growth hormone deficiency in a patient with pituitary disease. And I'm 100% confident about the diagnosis, but the insurance company says since the IGF-1 is normal, we're not going to let you treat the patient. Well, there's no guideline that says that's how you should do that. These insurance companies come up with this guideline because they're trying to beat the patient out of therapy. So and they, they don't care if patients suffer because yeah. they know you'll be on somebody else's insurance plan in a year or two anyway. So would that insurance eventually uh, approve it after you go through the process or they may not? Unfortunately, we've already appealed it and they denied it again. So it's just, yeah, the, my message to the patient and other patients who've experienced is just find another insurance company. Yeah, it's preposterous. Uh, they're all, it's absolutely preposterous. It's unconscionable. It should be criminal because they're practicing medicine without a license, telling a doctor and a patient you can't have that treatment that the doctor says that you need. Well, as you know, we did a, a, a live talk session a few weeks ago last month with with Lisa Nelson from uh, Amrit and Jill and talking about precisely these access issues. And, you know, the stories are, are incredible. And it seems like um, it's getting worse, uh, not better. And that's, that's those things are going to be a challenge, you know, until we are able to do something, for, uh, you know, to re regulate it so, so we can get the insurance company out of the business of... Uh, practicing medicine for you yeah. or making decisions for exactly. a, for a physician it's just uh, it's just incredible 
that that's... it reminds me of a joke that it reminds me of a joke that I saw on social media where a doctor gives a prescription to the patient. The patient takes it to the pharmacy, and the pharmacy says, "Does the patient need this prescription?" And the patient says, "Well, the doctor gave me the prescription, so I think the doctor thinks that I need it." So then the pharmacy gets it to a specialty pharmacy, as many of our drugs go. Come. Yeah, and the specialty pharmacy says, "Well, does the patient need the medicine?" Uh, should we ask the doctor? And then the, the pharmacy and the patient say, well, the doctor wrote the prescription, so they must think I need the medicine. Okay, fine. Let's ask the insurance company. The insurance company says, does the uh, does the patient need the medicine? Maybe they don't really need the medicine. Let's deny it. And then the doctor does the appeal, and then they say, let's talk to the doctor to see if the patient really <laughs> needs the medicine. And it's like I wrote the freaking prescription Just in the, the first place. place. What is wrong with this system? You know, and uh, I don't know how to fix this. You know, the unfortunate thing with medicine is it's so complex and there's so many entities involved. Some of these things are like freight trains that have already picked up speed and they're rolling through and they're going to blast through the town and not stop. And, you know, there, there's going to be a huge crash at some point. Uh, you can't you can't stop the energy of these freight trains. And, and this attitude that insurance companies have is one of those freight trains that I think is out of, out of control on the tracks and, and I don't know how to stop it or change it or redirect it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure anybody can at this point. I think that it's just going to get worse before it gets better. I, I think that's the uh, outlook, at least from these two <clears throat> ladies that we talked about. And one, you know, patient advocate, you know, who talks to patients all the time, who these are issues that are presented to her that she helps constantly with, you know, these authorizations and insurance companies getting in the middle. And then from the pharma, from AMP uh, standpoint, how they've made it a point to uh, make prior authorizations uh, an issue that they need to work on to see if they can affect some change, you know, on on the way that that is being done. So, uh, if ten years ago this was a very minimal problem, you know, and we would write prescriptions, and we may have to authorize something in an insurance company, like say for you know, some of her for acromegaly or something like that, but uh, it was rare. And now you have to get everything authorized, including testosterone refills and, and sometimes even cabergoline. And the, and the, the problem, the problem is, is it costs, it costs money yeah. and money is time. This was bef before COVID. We did a cost analysis to figure out based on the input of time and the salary expenditures and things like that, that it was costing my practice and this is before we were busier than we are now. It was costing us $120,000 a year just to be able to authorize medicines for patients. And that's something we don't get paid for. Yeah. We, we have to do that on out of our own pockets, so to speak, and spending the time. We ultimately had to hire someone to do half time for authorizations to, do, to help with this process. Mm -hmm. uh, and now she's not doing it half time. She's doing it full time, which means she's taken half of her time away from helping do other administrative things. And, uh, and the, the nurse and the nurse practitioner and myself, we still do a lot of that work as well. So I, I imagine we're spending more than 150,000 a year just to get people's medications authorized. And, and you know, it's a thankless job because patients figure that's your responsibility. If you didn't do it and I had to miss two days of medicine, it's your fault. And they, they don't thank you when they get it done. It's the one thing that patients argue or complain about the most is they, that they miss their medicines. And, and in fact, many times that's the patient's responsibility because if you know your growth hormone is going to expire in two months, you need to see us before that expires so we can get it authorized and continue it. We have to play the game the insurance company set up and patients have to help. So you have to get your visit 
in 11 months from the last visit instead of 13. Yes. Because if you try to get it in 13, they're not going to let us authorize it until you've had a visit documented and have a new IGF-1 or a new testosterone or whatever it is we're, we're prescribing. So I encourage patients listening that if you're on a medicine that requires authorization, make sure that you get in to see your doctor at least six weeks, maybe four weeks before you're out of drug, or you will run out, not because of us, but because of the insurance company and their, and their policies. Uh, and, and most doctors do have a, a month wait list too. So you might want to think about it two months in advance and get on a schedule uh, or maybe three months in advance just so that you can make sure that you don't run out of medication. You know, it's interesting with the access to therapies. Uh, we just wrote uh, in our briefings and insights sections about some interesting things we see. You know, we scan through tidbits and there's an article that uh, had, was talking about that um, – insurance providers spend more than $800 billion on administration, which is about $2,500 a patient. And that is four times the per capita administrative cost that is in Canada. So that has to slow everything down. I mean, that's a preposterous cost just for administration. Uh, it's a cottage industry. Yeah. This this is the, this is the as I recall, the cost that insurance companies spend on their administration. Yeah, and then yours. And then we have the same. So, you know, in the end, it's probably several thousand dollars per patient, not just the 2,500. But, you know, if patients wonder where their healthcare premium dollars go, it goes to creating jobs in the entity that's trying to insure them because they want to do the oversight. And, you know, it gets to the point where it would be less expensive just to let doctors and patients do what they want to do. Because if they have to hire a chain of people to sort of look at it and then do authorizations and and also to do denials and, and appeals and all that, they're they're just generating jobs for themselves, taking money out of the out of the funds that should be used to provide health care, spending it on their administrative costs. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And you wonder, you know, the people that are making those decisions, what kind of, you know, qualifications they have to be making those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're not they're not medical providers, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, I, I, yeah, some of them might be. Some of them are maybe retired physicians or nurses or nurse practitioners or whatever. But in general, uh, the system is not supposed to be that complex. No, no. I, it's I, I, the fact that they want to want to have the oversight and want to guard the dollars to be able to pay their bills and to pay their shareholders. That's where we're in trouble. Yeah. And I know you saw this line when I wrote it, and I actually can't. I mean, I have to, I had to source it, obviously, because I hadn't written it. And it was sourced to a doctor from Singapore once told me, said that, you know, this article that I was reading, that it's tough, mm -hmm. this healthcare, healthcare's business, or maybe it's tough because we're treating as a, a healthcare as a business. And, you know, I think there's a lot yeah. of truth to that. Not that, you, you know, there shouldn't be profit and people shouldn't make money, but uh, I think there is... There is a lot to do to make it more efficient and more accessible and yeah. less expensive for people. And we're exactly. I mean, uh, so. <clears throat> anyway, there's got to be, there's got to be a way. And you know, unfortunately, everybody wants government controlled uh, single payer system. I don't think that's the best idea. <laughs> you know, because uh, you know when you look at the fact that you know. If, Medicare limits the the age that you should get mammograms, uh, the age for getting a PSA for men. I'm sure there are all sorts of other limits to Medicare and that, you know, you don't get access to this because it's not going to make a difference in your survivability. So 
at whatever the cutoffs are, probably they do the same thing for colonoscopies as well. I mean, you don't do colonoscopies on 70-year-olds. Uh, you start at 50, uh, you know, probably 70-year-old women aren't getting mammograms either. I don't know the criteria, but I do know because I'll see all these, when we order something, it comes across as a Medicare waiver that the patient has to pay for it themselves if they want the test. And, you know, PSA is one of those for men after a certain age. But I think if we put the put the the reins of healthcare and the economics of it in the in the uh, um, in the realm of the federal government, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it may be that we'll hear you're too old for dialysis. We're going to keep you comfortable and you know sort of let you go, kind of a thing. And uh, yeah, you know, who knows? I have no idea, but I can envision those types of scenarios because I've seen rational. Or rationed healthcare. When I was in my training at the VA, there was a bit of rationing going on there in the night, late 1980s. Yeah. I think that uh, there's like anything, you know. There's a, there's a, there's a middle range that things should work better, and they probably need. It, I would guess it needs uh, solutions from every every player to give in and say, yeah. how do we make this? And and actually put the the care, the healthcare in the center, not not yeah. the survivability of of the company or you know shareholder value or profit margins. Yeah. You know, it has to be. You have to think about it from a different angle. And I think the reason why we're not finding solutions is because most players are unwilling to do that to to yeah. turn the problem upside down and see can we actually really look at this from a different point of view. Yeah. And, uh, and so no, I think I think you're right. Healthcare has to be the center of it rather than the business aspects. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, if we had a situation where we weren't spending 800 billion or whatever that figure was on on uh, 800, what was the number? Billion or million? 800 800 billion on administrative cost. Yeah. This so, is a so, 27. So if we weren't. This is a 2017 yeah, or we 2018 number um, from that article. Yeah. If we weren't spending eight hundred billion on administrative costs of the of the insurance companies, and keep in mind that comes from premium dollars. Yeah. Uh, so you know people Co-pays. pay into the healthcare, and eight hundred we're paying as a country eight hundred billion to sort of uh, support the function of the insurance companies. Imagine if we could put that money to healthcare, yeah. the difference that we could make for people. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were able. You know, I don't. I don't regulation is never good in a, in a big but you know i think there's um there's things that we can do to make it more efficient and uh, yeah. again so but anyway I'm, I'm amazed that we're almost at the end of the hour but i was going to ask you because another thing that we talked about in this briefing and insights article was the a new brain layer discovery <clears throat> and i know you i know you found that fascinating so i thought i i thought i would ask you to to tell us what you thought about that so uh, oh, it was fascinating yeah. uh, to to learn that you know we we always think of the three layers uh, inside the skull that protect the brain. There's the dura mater, which is attached to the inside of the skull, and then there's the uh, arachnoid that's between the dura and sort of uh, contains the CSF. And then the inner layer was what's called the pia mater, which is actually attached to the to the right. brain itself. And um, this uh, discovery suggests that there's a layer in between the arachnoid and the pia, uh, and I don't remember what they call it. They use an acronym, yeah. but uh, sim or f- uh, sim, similar. Yeah, like, I can't remember. Yeah. But 
But it, at any rate, it's this extra layer that probably separates clean CSF from dirty CSF and is a result and uh, is involved in separating new CSF from from CSF that's going to be drained and cleared out of the system so that you can get rid of the waste products of brain activity. Uh, and it has some important immune cells that uh, are there to sort of survey for problems and things like that. And furthermore, if it's damaged, it may have some important implications in the inflammatory brain conditions or uh, other problems after head trauma or brain surgery or what have you. And uh, may play a role in things like multiple sclerosis, even. So we don't we don't know. We're we're going to learn a lot more over the next ten or fifteen years about this particular layer, and the importance that it really truly has in brain health. Uh, it's exciting to see new new advances like this, where you have a understanding that the, have... the article that we are, are are quoting in this in this article that we wrote is it, by the way it's in the front page of Pituitary World News briefings and insights and. We talk about a bunch of other things like uh, uh, issues of CBD and research. And uh, anyway, you should read it for, for our audience. Uh, but this comes from uh, Nature Magazine, and it's a fascinating article to read. Um, uh, uh, so anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's important to stay tuned to that because anytime there's a new discovery, whether it be at the microscopic or genetic level and about human beings, it's important to to recognize that uh, there are going to be a lot of additional research that are going to explain a lot of things that we observe clinically in patients with brain diseases and head injuries and things like that. So it's uh, if, if, it forms a, uh, a framework for further advancement and better understanding of diseases. And maybe in 20 years, they'll say, can you believe they didn't know that then, and uh, and they and because of that, they did this to patients. But now we know not to, to do, do that. that to patients, yeah, so. yeah. Which I think that's what we're going to see. Which happens constantly in medicine, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, so many of the diseases that when I was a training in training, we knew as this disease or that disease. Now we know the genetic constitution of that illness, and we know why they have it. And uh, and you know they're targeted therapies now. Uh, not gene therapies, but targeted therapies because we understand the pathophysiology of what's going on. Uh, well, wonderful. This sort of thing uh, does indeed make the case for what we call bench-to-bedside research, the NIH funding research and things like that. And, you know, I, I used to, when I was a younger physician, be critical of the things that the NIH would fund because some of it looked like superfluous or worthless research. And probably probably 80% of it never comes to fruition uh, because the findings are negative or whatever, but you have to do the research because if you don't do the research, you, you don't, don't make know. the discoveries. And if you don't make the discoveries, you don't advance medicine. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm a proponent for medical research and then uh, uh, being uh, able to convert that uh, scientific information into a foundation for diagnosis and treatment. Yeah. Uh, in, in the years to come. It's fascinating, but typically it takes so long to find these things sometimes, you know, and I don't know how long researchers were working on this to, or how they discovered it, uh, but uh, it's really <coughs> interesting. Uh, we And I, I go back, I remember the conversation we had with Dr. Alan Krasner a few a month ago or so talking about their molecule uh, for the new uh, oral uh non-peptide for acromegaly and uh uh that took eight years you know there's yeah. or it was the 808th uh molecule that they that they studied 
before they discovered that one that that is working. Yeah. You know, the, just the, it was a CRN eight hundred eight. You know, and he was saying, yeah. "Well, eight hundred eight is because it was the, you know we looked at eight hundred and eight, and that took about ten or twelve years." I mean, that is, yeah, and you know they were looking. You know, of the, course, the, yeah. And, and when you when you go back to this other uh, this new layer of the the linings of the brain. Um, We've known about these linings since anatomists, you know, Andreas Vesalius in Italy in the, you know, the, the medieval ages or whatever, and at least in the mid, mid 1500s or whenever, 1400s, I can't remember exactly when he dissected uh, uh, criminals that were put to death and corpses he would find on the road or whatever. But uh, we've known about these, these layers since the beginning of the study of the human body and certainly when medicine started advancing in around 1900 1912 1914 we were really starting to take a scientific approach to medicine uh, and even to the modern day as of like two weeks ago or whenever this paper was published uh, we didn't know about this you know and and now we know about it so the first question i asked how could we have missed it and it, and it goes back to what Dr. Krasner was talking about in these compounds. You really literally have to look to find things. And that's why this was found. You know, you have to suspect it or you have to look. And, you know, it sort of goes back to what I used to say as a kid. You don't find any, any salamanders unless you're willing to turn over the stones and look for them. You know, so they're not, they're not going to come out. You have to go looking. And that's what medical research is all about is to go to look for things and, uh, and they found this uh, this lining. So I think it's an awesome advance uh, advancement. To me, it's one of the more fun, interesting, fascinating discoveries in a while that I've seen. And I've seen a lot. You know, being in a department of neurological surgery, you hear about a lot of different amazing advances and things like that. And this is like this was under our noses all the time. You know, and now it may play a role in. It may not, it may not, but it probably is going to play a role in understanding of diseases in the future and maybe change therapies as well. Yeah, I was, I, uh, even as a layperson, I was just fascinated by the, by the discovery itself, you know, the reading the, yeah, the reading that article. So I encourage you, all our listeners, to, uh, to go to the website and click on this story uh, with a new brain layer. There's a, there's a, there is a uh, link directly to the to the study, uh, and then you can read more uh, about the author of this story as well. So, you know, when I looked at that paper, I have to admit that it it, it impressed me as much as did when I was a fellow at Hopkins, hearing a lecture by the guy that discovered how our our eyes, especially the rods uh, and the cones, process light information. And he had, he was really one of the first to show the speed at which the signal of light gets transduced into, to a nerve impulse. Oh, wow. And it it's just lightning fast. I mean, I don't remember the speeds, but it's just unfathomable that something can happen that quickly. And it's the way it just helped me understand how remarkable our human bodies are and the speed at which they work and the, the time of those reactions is not something that we can really truly appreciate or understand because we have this time reference to the hour, to the minute, to the second, to the, you know, most of us don't count below a second, but in the medical field, it's like microseconds and nanoseconds and things like that for these things to happen. And it all, it's, it's a wonderful story because it's, it's how fast things have to be for us to be able to use our eyes to see something moving or to see in front of us or to, 
change the way our eye receives information after we've looked at something and we turn to look to something else and and all of that and it's the the beauty of the human body and and how it's uh how it's functioning and this is this discovery reminds me of my reaction to seeing that thing this guy think talk and think holy cow i had no idea you know this is some of the most incredible stuff i've seen not not something that i would have done any research on or let it led been led down a path but something that it's like i'm glad i can be part of the audience and observe what's going on uh, and to see the great minds uh, do this work to to understand the, the human body and disease and health but it's certainly very exciting and as you say totally worth keeping up with it and and monitoring what's going on with it so we will yeah. we will definitely do that and when whenever we see something good we will share it <laughs> Well, I, I know I appreciate the briefings. Uh, I don't know how you find this fascinating information and these facts yeah. and factoids, but I, kn I know that our audience probably appreciates them as much as yeah, I do. You know, keep up the good work for it. Thank you. It's the 35 years, just like your medicine, 35 years of doing, doing research for clients and uh, trying to find nuggets of great information. You know, so that yeah. just, I, I, I think you, you, you sort of develop a, an eye for it or a sense that you see a story and say, boy, that sounds really interesting. Let, let's look at this. Because like, as you know, we get hundreds of day of these, you know, feeds and things. And you, yeah. you look at it and you go, well, that, and sometimes you, you know, for me, it's just finding it and or, uh, seeing something interesting and then, you know, seeing what else is in there. That's just interesting. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. But I can't believe this yeah. hour went by like a, yeah, it's a good discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. So, so uh, was there anything else that you wanted to to chat about, or? Oh, we probably could talk forever about yeah. pituitary disease <laughs> yeah. and patients and clinics and medicine, but I think this is good for today. Yeah, so. sounds great. Okay, well, we'll save uh, some of it for later. Yeah, sounds good. Well, stay tuned for our uh, uh, announcements on the next subjects and. Um, and uh, we'll keep you posted on on uh, and keep you know keep reading Pitarian news. The only other thing that I would do is remind you to subscribe uh, to PWN so you don't miss any of our postings and articles. So, and thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Dr. Blevins. We'll we'll see you soon. All right, it's great to see you, and uh, thanks to you folks for listening today. We'll be back at you in a couple of weeks or so. All right, take care. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>